Hello, so this is uh, a session on um, uh, Giordano Bruno, and I think as uh, Richard has uh, shown in his uh, masterful tour de force, that um, Francis Yates's work is, is something that has gotten often uh, everyone excited about these uh, uh, unusual subjects and then people have worked on with them. Uh, it certainly was true for myself and uh, my fellow young girls uh, uh, when we uh, were studying in uh, secondary school and then at the Folger Shakespeare Library in uh, all sorts of, of stimulating conversations there often. They began with, well, I think Yeats says something about that, and everyone would go, go to Yeats. Yeats is very much a, a starting point, someone who, who really opens up uh, these complex areas. So this session is, is very much about uh, going on from uh, Yeats. And uh, to, um, to begin with is uh, Professor uh, Dilwyn Knox of uh, University College uh, Renaissance Studies. I'm sure if you, you look at the website, you'll, you'll find uh, much ab about his uh, Im important and innovative um, contributions. And um, so now I, I leave the floor to Professor Knox. Thank you very much. Uh, Richard has given a very hard act to follow. I'm not sure I'm such a good actor or even scholar as he's obviously shown himself to be. I must say to start off with that I was extraordinarily grateful to receive the invitation to come uh, today and speak about Yeats and Bruno because I've been working on Giordano Bruno for a couple of years now in a consolidated way as opposed to bits and pieces. But not only because of that but because uh, it's a way of uh, acknowledging a debt that I've had. I am the first or equal first beneficiary of Francis Yates's uh, generous bequest to the Warburg Institute. Uh, together with one other person, I was the, the first Francis Yates scholar. So this, in a way, is a, a thank you. And I do hope you won't think that I'm ungrateful because I will, perhaps in the same spirit as Richard has done, have some things that Francis Yates would perhaps feel uncomfortable with, although perhaps I think she was a scholar and a spirit large enough to acknowledge that what we are engaged in is research and that we don't come to one answer that remains there, that things have to be constantly qualified. So I, I, I do hope you'll uh, excuse me if at certain moments I say quite bluntly, I think she got something seriously wrong. Not the whole way through, I hasten to add. <laughs> so, um, first of all, uh, I hope this all works. Yeats meets, meets Bruno. Richard has set the scene already. We must think of Francis Yeats as this spirit yearning for some kind of international, irenic sense of culture, and not only in a political sense, but also in a cultural sense. And Bruno really does fit that model perfectly. Uh, here is something that will immediately bring this point home to you, I hope. Bruno is born in 1548. He becomes a Dominican at 15, uh, when he's a quite a young, oh, quite an old boy, uh, when he's 17, which is remarkably late for, uh, uh, to join an order. And then he becomes a priest in 15, 
65. All of this is just standard uh, curriculum for somebody of his kind. But then he is expelled from his order, or rather he flees from his convent because he knows he's in trouble. And in 1576, and from that moment onwards, and you must imagine this to understand the man and to understand really Yeats's interpretation, he is on the run. He's a Dominican who has fled his order. You cannot flee your order any more than you can free the front, free the front line. Uh, you are wanted by both sides. And he is now going to do a wonderful grand tour in reverse of Europe. And in a way, he is Francis Yates in one bubble because he goes to various places, he experiences the culture of all of these places. He's somebody who's trying to overcome an irenic cultural uh, uh, spirit of the same kind as Francis Yates herself. So if you can imagine him down here in Naples, fleeing his order, going to Rome, wandering around northern Italy, getting rather menial jobs as teaching a bit of Latin here or there, uh, not quite what uh, he thought he was capable of, fleeing to France, to Switzerland, France again, and then back to Paris. This is where Francis Yates starts to meet Bruno because he's turning up in the court of Henri and he makes a big splash. And then for reasons that we're not quite sure, he comes to London. Uh, he's sent to live with the uh, French ambassador, Michel de Castelnau, who puts him up for two years. He teaches his daughters some Italian and he writes some of the works for which he is best known before coming back to France within the train of Henri in order, uh, again, not, we're not entirely quite sure why Michel de Castelnau was asked to return, but he did, and Michel, uh, Bruno came with him and then started again on his peregrinations. Michel de Castelnau had fallen out of favour, was no longer in a position to be his... He came to Mainz, Frankfurt, Marburg, as they say, before fatefully coming back to Italy in 1591, uh, where he was arrested. And I'm sure you probably already know the story, eventually executed in 1600. So here is a man who has uh, a European experience uh, by definition. No respect for frontiers, to pick up a, word, a quotation that Richard made. So... Uh, just, uh, again, a rather important little theme to keep in mind, and I'll come back to this slide at the end. Here is a note from Henry Cobham to Walsingham, Elizabeth's uh, spymaster, recounting various things that were happening in Paris, where Cobham was the ambassador. And at the bottom, down here, and I'll show you, is a little note about our friend Giordano Bruno. Well, there was, yes, here it is. And here's a transcription of it. The French ambassador writes, Il signor Dr. Giordano Bruno Nolano, a professor in philosophy, intended to pass into England, whose religion I cannot recommend. Uh, that is, of course, Bruno's religion <laughs> cannot be recommended. And that is the man for you. Uh, and what I hope I'll try to explain is how Bruno is a philosopher and that Yeats's interpretation can be adjusted shall we say, to fit that mould. But one or two rather drastic little adjustments have to be made. He comes to stay with uh, Castelnau, and here's the French embassy up here, Salisbury Court. And there's this wonderful scene 
in the first of his philosophical dialogues where Bruno meets Florio and also meets the, um, his immediate patron. He has several patrons while he's in London. Uh, um, the uh, courtier, uh, perhaps I dismissed that one out, uh, Fulk Greville. And this will give you a kind of indication of Bruno the man. He says, this is in the dialogue, and Fulk Greville asks him to come along and explain his interpretation of the Copernican universe. Please, Bruno, help me understand the reasons why you believe that the Earth is in motion, the Copernican hypothesis. To which Bruno replied, he was unable to give him any reason at all, since he did not know what he, Greville, was capable of understanding, and not knowing how he, Bruno, might be understood by him, he feared that he might do like those who explain things to statues and go to speak with the dead. Uh, this is, of course, the perfect way to ingratiate yourself <laughs> with the patron. Um, and it's true to character. Everywhere he went, he stirred up trouble. Uh, he, not by chance, he's the only known philosopher of the 16th century to have been excommunicated by all three major confessions. Uh, so we have the man in more or less that. And, of course, you'll also notice that speaking to statues and speaking with the dead, that, of course, is an allusion to Christian practices. So Bruno is a philosopher. He rejects the idea of a revealed religion. So... Uh, let me just now say a little bit about Bruno's fortunes before Yeats's interpretation, so you can see quite how drastic her interpretation, reinterpretation of him was. I have to jump a few centuries. This is somebody you may recognize, Coleridge. But Coleridge is one of the many people who, in the 18th century, started to reinterpret Bruno and give him a positive twist. Up until, say, the 1790s, he was near enough the Antichrist. Marine Mersenne, uh, the correspondent of Descartes, called him the most evil man to ever walked the earth. And this was the view that was officially propounded. Of course, some people like naughty boys, but the official position was very clear. He was an evil man who had rejected Christianity outright. His fortunes are then linked with Spinoza because Bruno is essentially a pantheist. Spinoza is a pantheist. So the equation is Spinoza's a bad man. He got all of his ideas from an even worse man. So therefore Spinoza's as even worse than you might have thought. And that is, roughly speaking, the interpretation of Bruno that survives until shortly before uh, Coleridge's time. Uh, ex explanations of how Bruno's became uh, a kind of hero for the Enlightenment is rather interesting, but I won't go into the details now. But Coleridge is inheriting this view of Spinoza's, uh, connecting Spinoza and Bruno together, but now Spinoza has become a hero. So Bruno is now our hero. And this little passage, a rather fascinating passage, I can't explain it to you because it will take me an hour to do so, but I will read it quickly with you because it's quite uh, evocative. This is Coleridge's creed. This is what Coleridge actually said was his creed at this moment of his life. Uh, so creed, obviously, is a rather loaded word. So far from now being the Antichrist, he's become the author of a kind of Bible, Enlightenment Bible. So she'll undertake in this book 
this contemplative exercise, seeking the splendor, the outpouring and communication of the divine and of nature, not in an Egyptian, Syrian, Greek or Roman individual, and that's Moses, Christ, etc., not in food, drink or some even less noble matter, that's the Eucharist, Sorry, I've lost my place. Uh, like those stupefied people of our age, and by fabricating and dreaming up inventions, but instead we shall look for them in the majestic palace of the omnipotent, in the limitless space of ether, in the infinite power of the twofold nature becoming all things and creating all things. Whence we shall contemplate the vast number of heavenly bodies, Bruno believed in an infinite universe, populated by an infinite number of worlds, or worlds, as I call them, great animate beings. Please underline the word animate in your minds. And divinities celebrating the one most high in a dance without limits of number or limit, according to their own inclination and order everywhere. Thus, from the eternal, limitless, and innumerable effects of what is visible, is glimpsed that eternal and limitless, intelligible majesty and beauty. We shall then indeed cast our gaze towards the omniform image of the omniform God, and wonder at the vast likeness, living likeness of him. That's the universe as the image of God. God is in the world. This is quite a sort of powerful passage, and this is, uh, gives you a sense of Bruno. Perhaps it is uh, evocative best and why he's so attractive to pe- people like Coleridge, but also to all of the great names of German philosophy in the 19th century. Hegel, uh, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, they all had copies of Bruno, and they all thought of him in this sort of spirit. And he becomes then uh, the national hero of Italian Risorgimento. Uh, when you're looking for a hero, a cultural hero, if you are somebody who is anti-clerical, and much of the Risorgimento is fueled by anti-clerical sentiments, Bruno is just the man persecuted by the church unduly, and you build a monument to him looking directly at St. Peter's. Um, there it is, and this uh, completely unlike lifelike image of him because he was actually a rather small little man. We know that from the the records of his trial rather than this huge uh, figure. So that is where we are until Francis Yates comes along. A figure of reason. Cobham has described him as this philosopher whose religion I cannot recommend. is reason, not revelation or anything that might be considered un-irrational. Uh, Again, the Enlightenment presented him as the figure of reason like Spinoza. And then also the Risorgimento had held him up as a leader because, precisely because he was not uh, a clerical. He had abandoned his clerical habits in both senses of the word. And then Yates proposes what? That he is a hermesis, a hermeticist and a magician. It's completely the opposite of what everybody has done beforehand. Uh, Perhaps just because I sense I may be running short of time, I'll just paraphrase what's going on here. Uh, You can read it as I perhaps speak. Bruno is explaining that the ancient Egyptians worshipped onions, crocodiles and lizards and other things perhaps I can't see behind my head, and that this ancient Egyptian religion was ultimately resolvable to astrological influences. So you must imagine the zodiac or other parts of the universe that 
were having influence on our world down here, and they related the constellations and so on to animals, this, that, and the other. It's a rather shorthand explanation, but for the moment I think it'll have to do. He was a magician because he was drawing down these celestial influences, and he was a hermeticist because he looked to ancient Egypt for this true account that he was now reinventing uh, for his contemporaries. And all of this belongs to the tradition that uh, other authors before Jan Francis Yates had proposed, people like Garan and Christella and also D.P. Walker, her colleague at the Warburg Institute, already proposed that there was a hermetic tradition of some kind. That uh, was not the word that these other authors had used, but she implanted there, that there was a tradition whereby these philosophers of the Renaissance looked to the ancient Egypt as the source of true wisdom, and to prove it, there were these wonderful books that now known as the Corpus Hermeticum, the Pimander and other works, the Asclepius, which uh, explained, in Greek, but uh, because they've been translated from the hieroglyphs, explained what Hermes Trismegistus meant. I should just miss that out, if I may. And then, even before she'd written her Art of Memory, where Bruno is presented as somebody with this uh, new, revised, mnemonic method. She had portrayed magic as part of memory as well. And that was because of these, mainly, not only exclusively, but these various images that are in Bruno's books, where you can see the sun in the middle, Copernicus, and the various signs around the side are again meant to be... Uh, ways of attracting celestial influence and, in your brain, producing a special memory palace that allowed you to map what the world was onto you. So you were fulfilled, your little microcosm of the macrocosm, which was now an infinite macrocosm, and you were able to become fulfilled, perfected, because you had uh, protracted these influences. And here's one for those of you who like uh, enigmas. Uh, and you can rotate the wheels. Here's the Lullian part of it all, according to Yeats, coming into play as well. I thought in just one little addition to perhaps what Richard was saying, because as I said, it was a kind of perfect backdrop explaining how Yeats had this irenic international view of how culture should really be operating and needed to be refound. There is also a more general interest in the irrational in the 20th century, people like, obviously, Freud, Jung, and so on, but also people like uh, Dodds and many others, but Dodds is a particularly beautiful example, the Greeks and Irrational being one particularly prominent example of this, his book in which he ex explained the Greek interest in the Irrational, that it wasn't right to portray the Greeks as purely rational as we tend to do, the great philosoph philosophical tradition. And Dodds, although uh, the most lucid and rational of all minds, explored this. And that, too, is a kind of model for her. It's not just a kind of general model. There's a very rather specific model of looking to the irrational as something that cannot be denied in culture and has to be kept alive in order to understand even our own rationality. Yeah, it's really forced that interpretation, this kind of interpretation of Bruno as a hermeticist, 
and as a, a magician. Uh, when I reread her books, and I wanted to try and understand a little bit more how I might be, saying, be able to say something rather positive about her, I clung onto this passage initially where she says, this book is not a monograph on Bruno. It sets out only to do what its title states, to place him in hermetic tradition. Before a final reassessment of Bruno is possible, other studies are necessary. And I thought, ah, oh, good, that means we've got it all wrong. And she did understand that there was a large part of Bruno that was not about what she was talking, and that we should just realize that she was just trying to set Bruno in a tradition, but not excluding other possibilities. Unfortunately, I, I realized, I, I clung on to this as long as I could, but it's not true, because what she means in a passage like this, and there are other instances, that she hadn't yet written The Art of Memory, where she'd proved that The Art of Memory was also magical, and that everything else that Bruno was doing was also magical. It's just she hadn't got round to doing all of the magical bits. So I'm afraid that it, what I described to you in a rather sort of brief manner is the essence of what she's getting at. And there isn't another Bruno. That's really what is rather startling about it. Not that there's Bruno, the magician, and then there's another Bruno, but that really everything that Bruno represented can be traced back to this magical hermeticist element. This is where I have to you know, look rather red in the face. Now, I, I won't give you a history of celestial influence, but perhaps I could just briefly explain what is going on so you could understand the criticism that I think has to be made. Here's a picture from Robert Flood, I'm sure some of you will recognize this, where you see me or perhaps Richard or somebody in the middle and we are in the middle of a crucible. That is, you have a cosmos and the various influences coming from the planets are actually meeting here in the middle and so frying us, rather like radioactivity. Uh, and... Uh, this, you know, the sun obviously has an influence on us, and the moon does, and so do the other stars and planets. So the astrologer's art, or in Bruno's art too, must be to try and understand how these influences are conditioning and affecting our lives and making use of it. That's what should be happening. That is what astrologers have always been doing. What now Bruno, in his own way, through his memnonic treatise, should now be doing uh, too. There is something fundamentally wrong. This isn't a matter of exaggeration. That is, it's not enough to simply say that Yeats was exaggerating an element that is there in Bruno that we can then sort of adjust and so on. It cannot be true that Bruno thought in those ways for the following reason. It's also, it, it, it is in the first place um, not an obvious thing to think if you believe in an infinite universe, because you've destroyed that idea of a crucible. Uh, that is, there are planets just everywhere, and stars everywhere. So your astrologer's art becomes almost impossible. You're computing with too many cosmoses. That's not to say it's impossible. People like um, Kepler still believed in celestial influence. So it's, as it were, not you can do it, but it becomes uncomfortable. But it's also contradictory to what Bruno himself said. He denied celestial influence, and he did so in the book that Francis Yates set out originally to translate, but never accomplished, that is, La Cena delle Ceneri. This is a brief excerpt from a passage where he does exactly this. On this conclusion, namely that nothing is moved from one place to the other by an external principle without 
it's a contact and the application of a force that is greater than the objects of resistance to motion. He's thinking of a magnet. Magnets, there's a piece of metal, and here's your magnet, and the piece of metal will move to it. And Bruno is denying that there is anything, that thing is moving because of uh, uh, some uh, external principle. There must be an internal principle that is making it move. Depends another in conclusion. It is solemn nonsense and something that a well-tempered mind cannot be persuaded to believe that the moon moves the way waters of the sea. Uh, we all, I hope, all believe that that is true. That is one standard example of celestial influence. We're not even getting up to Venus or anything like that at the moment. It moves the water of the sea, causes tides, makes humors increase, breeds fish, fills oysters, and produces other effects. Of all these things, the moon is not the cause, but only the sign. That is, these two things are happening together because there's something else making them both happen simultaneously. He denied celestial influence even of things where we nowadays would agree that there is such a thing, except for two things, heat and light from the sun. Now, th these aren't even exceptions. It, it would take me a bit of time, and I'm not going to try now, to explain to you why heat and light are exceptions, that they are celestial influences in one sense, but not contradictions of what he is saying. The essence of it is that he believes that heat and light are internal principles to the universe. Remember, the universe is this animate, as he said, universe, filled with life, and that heat is a form of light. And because you have it within you, or any object has it within itself, it's, able, it's some kind of sight that connects with the intelligible light of the universe. And so the heat and light are not external principles, they are internal. So everything is internal, not external. A pantheist view of celestial influence, really a shorthand way of it. So celestial influence is simply impossible in Bruno's system. And therefore, I'm afraid, Yeats's interpretation of him as somebody who believed in celestial influence and a hermeticist who is also equally philosophically, according to Bruno, not plausible. A compromise. I feel I owe away, and this is my conclusion. Now, I've, this is a, a quotation from two experts of... Um, memnonics, Bruno's Memnonics. Uh, I happened to come across this passage. I didn't choose it for a particular reason, but it represents a, kind of a reasonably authoritative view of how uh, scholars view or can view Bruno's Memnonics. The, the article actually begins by saying that they're not going to continue with the inquisitorial, of course, alluding to Bruno's own inquisition, inquisitorial process uh, of uh, Bruno. Uh, because Yeats has almost every single article uh, in Italian begins with ormai um, superato la tesi di Yeats. By now, Yeats's interpretation is surpassed. It's kind of de rigueur uh, comment. But this is a kind of re revisionist interpretation of that revision, and where they are trying to, as well, save some of what Francis Yeats uh, proposed. And I think it's kind of reasonable view myself. Uh, she, they're explaining that, if I can quickly read this, Marco Mattioli and I, Rita Sturlesi, and she's certainly a very serious philologist and a, a sane spirit, uh, unfortunately dead now, 
are convinced that Bruno did not intend his art of memory, with its accompanying memnonic treatises, uh, techniques, imagery uh, of the kind that I showed you before, and numerous generative diagrams, because those diagrams can rotate and generate, uh, to be a means of empowering the memory by drawing down celestial influence. The diagrams are no more than illustrations of the organizational structure, usually of a Lullian combinatory kind, of his memory techniques. We do not therefore subscribe to the interpretation proposed by Francis Yates and those who follow her. Yeats did, however, or so we believe, manage to individuate an essential feature of Bruno's novel art of memory, namely that he intended it to be an art that shaped the personality of its practitioner, endowing it with special powers, an art capable of forming a magus in the most noble and principal sense of that word. That's a quotation from Bruno, which I'll read you in a half a second. As Bruno himself says in his De Magia Naturale, that is, as a wise man, endowed with the ability to operate. What the uh, essence of this reinterpretation is that the, uh, Bruno, the philosopher, is somebody who wants to engage with what is intelligible, what is understandable, by looking at this universe, understanding its principles, and making the mind, the human mind, a, a kind of pattern or blueprint of the central principles of the universe, and by so doing, you perfect yourself. But this is an entirely philosophical process, and that is what uh, they, they point out in this quotation here. I won't read that, but just this, I shall finish with this quotation. Here you can see Bruno saying essentially this himself. The magus, yes, Bruno is a magus, but what is a magus for Bruno, a philosopher? Exactly what Cobham, Henry Cobham, reported, Bruno said he was. He was somebody looking for a job. Please go back to that position. He's a Dominican. How is he going to survive? Teaching Latin to young noblemen? It's not what Bruno wants. He's looking for a job as a university lecturer. It's a terribly boring thing to think about for such a great mind, but that's what he wants. And he wants to be a philosopher. And the Magus is just, unfortunately, no more really than a synonym in his mind, with additions and flowerings that we could add on later, but that's what it is. The word magus, defined according to the rules of definition followed by logicians, and especially Aristotle in his topics, should be understood in its most significant and noble meaning. The word magus, as it is used by philosophers and defined by philosophers, the word magus denotes a wise man with the power to act. Thank you. <laughs>